Welcome to episode 37 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Welcome, folks. Today, I bring you a podcast with a very engaging guest, Patty Scott. Now, you may have heard Patty's name be mentioned by her husband, uh, Dave or David Hasbury, from episode 35, uh, where Dave and I talk about uh, really uh, placement and coverage and the history of the disability sector and how we got to where we are today. And Dave mentions the great work that the Patty's done and really uh, thinking differently about providing support to people with developmental disabilities. Um, so Patty has worked for more than 30 years uh, with people uh, that have disabilities, and she co-founded an organization called Neighbors uh, Inc. And it's a really innovative organization, and I won't explain too much about it now because Patty does a much much better job of doing that in the podcast. And she'll talk about why she created Neighbors and really the core values that Neighbors holds to help people to live the lives that they truly want to live. So it's a really um, engaging and inspiring conversation with Patty. And I hope it helps you think a little bit differently about your loved one uh, that might have a disability or people that you or your organization support. So here's Patty. Hey, Patty, welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about doing this. My pleasure. I'm excited to have you on as a guest. So Patty, maybe we could just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and the organization that you lead, Neighbors. Okay. Well, I've been doing this for, gosh, about 35 years now, and I started out in the, the early 80s um, supporting people with disabilities, and it was the beginning of deinstitutionalization in the state of New Jersey, and was working in group homes and doing things along those lines, and over the course of time, that just wasn't feeling very right to me. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And I can get into that more after I do, uh, you know, the introduction part. But uh, in 1995, um, for many reasons, I decided to start an organization called Neighbors. And Neighbors was and is all about supporting people in a very individualized way to live a full life in the community of their choosing and to have their own home and to be in charge of what happens in their life and to make a meaningful contribution to the world. Yeah, that's awesome. So there's a few questions that come to mind there, but I guess for you, you explained kind of how you worked in the disability sector and you didn't necessarily see like what you saw and along the way and in some instances. So what really drove you to create an organization to and to do things a little bit differently? Well, there were actually a whole bunch of things, but some of them were the what I saw as the inequities in the the way people were supported to live. So people had moved out of institutions and into very nice houses and very nice neighborhoods, but they were still living with the same people they had lived with in the institution. They may have been living with people that they didn't like when they were living in the institution. And in fact, the the first group home I worked in, that was the case. These guys were living together and didn't like each other. And that just didn't make any sense to me. And they were going to day programs with other people who had moved from the same institution instead of having a job in the community. And they're riding a van that everybody who had moved out of the institutions all rode. And it, it was like there was a separate life um, that people were living. They were in a community, but they weren't part of a community. And in fact, their life, while it was in a much nicer house, didn't look much different than it had looked when they were in the institution. Um, and the first group home I, I worked in, um, the neighbors and the community weren't even welcoming to the men who lived there. So um, not only were was their life pretty much restricted to similar to what it had been in the institution, um, but they weren't even 
developing new relationships or getting connected within their community at all. Um, so that that was one part of it, that it didn't seem like a, a kind of life that you could pay me to to want to live. Uh, a second piece was that I, I was working there and the other people who were working there and the people who ran the organization, we all really wanted to do good things for people. And we worked really hard and um, we really, um, our commitment was to support people to have a life that was full and rich and meaningful. And it seemed to me that the reason that it wasn't happening um, wasn't because of the work we were doing. And in thinking about it over time, it struck me that it had to be about the way that the supports for people were designed. Like you could have the nicest people doing the hardest work, but if they were doing it uh, in the wrong setting, it's not going to make any difference. It's sort of like you could have made the Titanic look really gorgeous and upgraded everything and put new curtains and new deck chairs and had the best menu. And if the boat went down, it's not going to matter. You know, there's a, 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 a more global structural issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed like the way we were supporting people needed to be designed differently. Um, and the ultimate thing came for me in 1995, right before I started the organization, when someone that I cared about very much and was was trying to support who had been in a, a temporary respite kind of setting because she had tried to hurt herself, um, developed some real dreams for what she wanted for her life. And we would have been able to support her to pursue those dreams. They didn't cost any more money. We had organized it. We had set it up. We had figured out how to make it happen. And ultimately, she wasn't able to because the the system that was providing these group homes, um, these kind of segregated group home type settings, they had openings and vacancies. And she needed to move into one of those vacancies. And it was a real eye-opener for me. At the time, I was um, co-executive director at the organization I was working for, a really good organization. And I realized that instead of supporting people to live life the way they wanted to, the kind of supports we were providing were keeping people from living the life they wanted to live. So instead of being someone who was helping people to move in the direction that they wanted to go, the structure of the work we were doing um, was actually hindering that. Um, and I just didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to to start something over from scratch um, that could be structured and designed in a way that could really support people in a way that I wanted to be supported, that could help people to have a life that gave them the same kind of opportunities um, that I want for myself and for the people that I love. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, what you're saying really resonates. I think so many people have those positive intentions, but if you're working in a a model or a system that's not designed to meet the needs of the individual, you're set up for for failure. It's very difficult to meet those needs if the system's not designed in a way that um, that enables people to to support in that manner. And I like your analogy about the Titanic. Right? Um, doesn't matter what you do, but it's still going to go to the bottom. Yeah, and I think um, I do think for myself there was just something about needing to take some personal responsibility. You know, I, I like where I worked and they were good people and, and trying to do good things. And they were very supportive of me, but if it's not the work that kind of resonates in my own heart with what I want to be doing, um, I felt I needed to do something about that where I was part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I admire you for taking that step or, and, you know, and then another step and another step and, and getting to where you are now. So I'm curious when you kind of looked at, what you were doing and had that white blank canvas. Did you start with certain principles when designing neighbors or, or what did that, what did that look like? Well, there were a couple of general things that we believed and then there were some basic values that were underneath it. So, and, and they kind of, there's some overlap between them. Um, So some of the general things that we believe is number one, that people should be in control that the agency shouldn't be in control. People should have control over their own life, their supports, their services, their homes, 
um, and that they should have whatever support and help they need to to make that work for them, but they should be the ones in control, they and the people they love and, and who love them. So that's a dramatic shift in the way the the service provision system works, certainly in the mid-90s, because back at that point in time, and in many places it's true at this point in time and well as well, but especially back at that point in time, essentially people were served by agencies. Agencies would get the money. Um, they would figure out what kind of program a person would move into, and the person didn't have much choice or control. And in fact, if they weren't happy where they were living, um, they could ultimately choose to leave, but the money would stay with the organization. So it's not like they could go anywhere differently. So we wanted to make sure people um, have that kind of control in their life. We wanted to be very clear that we were working for the person, um, that they were essentially our boss. And if they ever did decide to leave, um, they could take their money and they could go. And we would take the money out of our agency contract because it's their it's their money, it's their resource, and support them to be supported elsewhere if that's what they, they wanted to do. Um, and we also really thought about the fact that we didn't want people to be dependent on the developmental disability system because being dependent on the system makes you a client of a system instead of a citizen of a community. If we wanted to support people to be citizens, um, they needed to not be 100% dependent on funding of whatever the local disability agency is. So um, we decided that really early that we would need to invest in looking at other resources for people and thinking in different ways about how to support people to have the kind of life they wanted to have. And there's almost no one that we work for in providing these individualized supports, even now, 20 some odd years later, um, that is reliant wholly on um, funding from government systems. We've supported and, and developed other ways for people to have resources, both um, people resources and social resources and community resources and other kind of funding opportunities for people um, who are poor or other things that they might be um, eligible to have access to so people's lives are not not just dependent on the system. So those were the basic, some of the basic thoughts in our head when we got started. And the values the basic values that we believed in, if I had to summarize them, that there's probably five things that we think are really important for people to have a good life. And we call it an investment framework because um, we think if you invest in these areas of life with people, um, that you can support people to develop a, a meaningful life. And by investing, it means we put a lot of time and energy into these areas, especially up front, because what we see happening over time is that as these areas grow, you don't have to invest as much, and that's because the investment starts to build into, um, you know, an asset. A, a person has an asset in that area. So I'll, I'll give some examples of that. But the five areas of the investment framework are first um, that people, their lives and their support should be built upon their dreams and their vision for their life. So instead of developing a program and someone can either fit into it or not fit into it, you listen deeply to somebody. You get to know them. Um, and then you help them design a life based upon what's important to to them. And there's a whole host of things that I think are really important about this. Um, and, it, you know, I could probably spend a morning talking about them. But in brief, a lot of the people that we worked for, uh, especially in the beginning, but still true to this day, um, had not had a lot of life experience. We helped a lot of people who are moving out of institutions who may have been there for you know, 40, 50 years. And so to talk to those folks about what's important to you and what do you want out of life and if you could live life the way you wanted it to and if you could live where you wanted to live, what would that be? It's really hard for somebody who hasn't been beyond the gates of an institution to know the answer to that. So that that's one of the first things around this dream and this vision. If people haven't had that kind of experience, we need to support them to just explore and get to see the world and see what's possible. Um, the second thing is people have often led pretty lonely, isolated lives with paid people coming in and out of their lives for years and years and years. And um, when we come in and enter into that, 
um, without knowing people very well, it takes a long time to build trust. And when there's no trust, people are not necessarily going to be open to sharing what's deeply important to them, you know, what's really in their heart, what, what matters to them. And so this idea of helping people explore their dream, um, we're big believers in person-centered planning. Um, in particular, we love using the tools of PATH and MAPS. Um, but we believe helping someone explore their dreams is an ongoing process as you build trust with them and experience life with them and the map or path is part of that process. But it's not a one meeting or one afternoon type of thing. It's uh, over time helping people explore what's important to them. Um, and then finally, that's going to change as we grow. Our dreams are going to change. What we want for our life is going to change. We had uh, one guy who moved and was so set on what he wanted. He came from an institution. He wanted to live near his mother and grandmother. He knew the apartment he wanted. He knew he, who he wanted to live with. This was the neighborhood he wanted. And he moved in there. And within three months, he wanted to move to another apartment. And six months later, he wanted to move to another apartment. And this went on with him for, you know, a good couple of years. And now he's been in the same place for 12 or 13 years. But it took him a while to really explore different things in life and figure out what he wanted. And it, to me, that's actually pretty normal because I think back to, you know, when I was young and that's pretty much what I did. You know, I kind of moved around from place to place and found what I wanted and how I wanted to live and who I wanted to live with and, and made that work for me. So one, as you help people explore those things and, and develop and clarify what their dreams and visions are, then you can design the supports that are going to work so people can live the way they want to live. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, this whole idea that people should have control over their own life um, and they should have the responsibility that goes along with that control. And, of course, they should have as much help as they need for that to work. And so we set up a couple of things as an agency to make that work. And the first was that any money that we got to support a person was their money. It went into an individual budget for them and they had authority over that budget. And this was in the days before individual budgets were happening. So it, it wasn't something that was, you know, easily, easily done or there wasn't a mechanism for it. So, yeah, we kind of created our own internal mechanism for individual budgets um, in the system that already existed where we were working. Um, so that was one thing. People had authority over their own resources. Um, they were the boss of their own staff, and we created our policies and procedures as an organization so that people were what they call here the managing employer, and that meant they could make all the decisions about their staff. They could decide who to hire, who to fire, what they pay them, what they do, if they want to give them a raise. Um, and there were times that I had different points of view on who someone should hire than the person did. And it was always the person's choice and the person's decision, as long as, you know, their staff person could legally be hired with, uh, with the funds, with the government funds. So they, you know, couldn't have committed any serious recent crime. And, you know, they had to be over 18, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted, we believe that people should have control of their own home. That's a, another resource that we thought was incredibly important. And so we didn't um, buy or own any property. We supported people to rent their own properties. And sometimes that meant guaranteeing the rent in the beginning. Um, one time I co-signed for somebody on a, on a lease, um, but we supported people to rent their own places and we supported people to buy their own homes. We accessed mortgage products that gave people low interest mortgages and we accessed down payment funding and we got to know how to do that. So a number of people bought their own, their own homes, but we thought it was important that this is the person's home. And if they decide at some point they don't want us to work for them and they want their money to move somewhere else and they stay in their home and we move on. Or if they don't want their staff anymore, then, you know, their staff goes, but they, they have their home and they have their base. And we just thought that that was really important for people. Um, so um, those were some of the things we built in structurally um, that we thought were important. And people, one of the things we learned is that people really got and loved the idea of being in control and managing their own resources and being the boss of their staff and having their own home. They didn't get as much right away 
the idea that that meant there's response, you have to take some responsibility for the decisions you make. Like you can't fire everybody on a Friday and expect that somebody is going to show up and do everything for you. Or you can't spend twice what your budget is and expect that somebody else is going to make up that, that money. Um, so, you know, part of our role was supporting people to, to think through those things. And I, I will say that um, the people we work for have been very responsible about that over time. And just like I was when I first started managing my own budget and my own apartment and my own life, they had a, a learning curve uh, about what it meant to, to be responsible about that. So that's the second thing, that people should have control and they should also have that responsibility that goes with it and they should have the support that they need in order to to make that work because it could be a big job to manage. You know, most of the people we work for have 24-7 support and it's a big job to try and manage all of that. Yeah, so. and the metaphor that's coming to mind for me is I'm picturing a um, an organizational chart for an organization and... I think typically an individual um, that has a developmental disability can almost fit into like a mid-level manager spot mm-hmm. where people above them are making a lot of decisions for them and offering them different programming. And what you've done is you've, you've given, them a, given them a promotion up to CEO and now they have that choice and control and then they have kind of their support structure below them. Yeah, I, I think it could certainly be described that way. And in fact, our organizational chart um, is like that, the people we work for on the the top of the chart. And I think one of the things we did to support that is um, we made a commitment to people that as long as they choose us to work for them, we'll stick with them, even if it gets difficult or challenging, as long as it's their choice, um, we'll stick with them for the rest of their life. So we have this kind of commitment to walk with people throughout life. And we have a role we we wound up calling the advisor. We didn't start with this role, but within a couple of years, we developed it. And that advisor is the person who supports the person in whatever way they need to manage their their supports and does a lot of the legwork for them so that it, the person is free to live their life managing their supports. doesn't have to be a full-time job, but they, they have this advisor who works for them and in partnership with them to make that happen. So we have a, a, a question from one of our listeners, Patty, that I would love to ask you. Just let me get to it here. Um, so this listener um, has a son or a daughter uh, with a developmental disability. Um, and they say, it's wonderful to have a goal um to have person-directed initiative based on uh, an individual's desires. Um, where we have difficulty as a family is either in funding or time to encourage natural relationships. How can a family with very little resources in time and financials help to create such a vision for their child? Well, um some of the next pieces of the investment framework I'm going to talk about this answer will relate to that a little bit. But um, one of the things we have worked with some kids who are in school, most of the people we work with tend to be adults, but we have worked with um, people who are still in, in school and supported them in developing a network of people around them, supported them in figuring out, you know, what they're good at and supported them in developing their dreams for the future, help them think about what they're, gifts are. And one of the things we found out is that the the schools, um, at least where we are, um, really do support that for the person. It, if it fits into their IEP, it's part of the transition planning and it can be part of what's going to happen as the student goes forward, particularly in the, the teenage years. Um, but one of the things that I would suggest is doing something such as a, a map with the, the young person and the family. And that's a planning process where you put a piece of paper up on the wall and you explore the kind of the story of the young person, um, but also what's important to them and what their gifts are and how those gifts can be shared in, in community. And if you can get an afternoon where people come together um, and you and the, the young person invite whoever is important to you to come and sit and be together for that, afternoon 
and you'll need to get some facilitators to come in and facilitate the map, some people who are familiar with the process. And if you just have that kind of conversation during the course of an afternoon and kind of start to figure out who this person is and what they have to offer and um, where they might be able to offer it in the community and you engage the people who are there, whether it be neighbors or some friends or some family, to start thinking about uh, with the, the person and the parents, how we can start to make some of this stuff happen and how we can start to pursue this and people who will actually, um, you know, help the, the person to start expanding some of what's discussed in the meeting. Um, I've seen some really wonderful things come out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the power of those relationships. Is there anything on the financial side of things that, that comes to mind for you in terms of... Um, getting the financial resources to start to make some of these things happen and to support an individual to pursue their dreams and desires? Well, that it's an interesting question. There are, certainly are things here that we can help people to access. I'm not sure how well that's depending upon what country you're in. It's harder to, to yeah. say. Um, but there are, um, there are things in the States you have to be a, an adult to access these uh, pretty much. But IDAs, they're called individual development accounts. And we run these for the people that we work for. And people can save money without it interfering with any of their benefits. Um, and they can save up to $3,000 over a three-year period. That's the, the program that we run. And at the end of that uh, three-year period, their dollars are matched times three. So they walk away with $12,000 and people can save that for things like starting a small business, um, education beyond, you know, high school, kind of college education or other training or um, vocational training. Um, or they can save it for uh, putting a down payment on a home or things along those lines. So it's stuff that can, with some saving and the match dollars, it can support people to develop an asset that they can actually use to do something that could actually, I don't want to say be life-changing, but can shift their life. I mean, you get a college education or you get vocational training or you start a small business or buy a home, it can actually um, shift your life. You've developed an asset you didn't have before. Um, the United States has legislation around something called an ABLE account that also allows you to start saving money when you're you're very young without it interfering with benefits. So there's there's things along those lines. Um, and I think it's our job to find those things and help people connect with them and and then even to develop the options like the IDA um, opportunity that we have within our organization to develop those for for people. Mm-hmm. Okay, very cool. So were there other elements of your values and the investment framework that you wanted to talk to? Yep. There's three more pieces of it. Um, so we did the the dreams and vision and basing supports on those. We did the, the responsibility and the more important, the choice and control. The next one was really helping people figure out who they are and what they have to offer the world. What is the person's gifts? Um, what is it that they're passionate about? What is it that they have to offer? How can they make a contribution and how can they make a, a difference? And for a lot of people, that's that's been about um, helping them see themselves differently and helping others see them differently. Because a lot of the people we work for have a whole host of labels attached to them that have absolutely nothing to do with with gifts. So it's uh, it's about helping people figure out what that that might be. So. For instance, someone that we helped move out of an institution who had all kinds of labels as um, behaviorally challenging and she would hurt people and she'd pull people's hair and rip scalp out of their head and all these kind of kind of things and that were attached to her. And it just really, you know, it didn't help her to feel very good about herself and people kept a large dis- distance from her. We tried to look at what are the gifts and what is it she has to offer. And one of the gifts she had was that she was a tremendously welcoming person. Um, now, she didn't like to be enclosed in spaces and she didn't like to be, you know, crowded in. But when she saw people, she would run up to them. She would remember everybody's names. She'd throw their 
arms around the, her arms around them and she'd see them. She'd welcome them and be, hi, Patty, I missed you. How are you? How's your mother? She'd remember little details about you. She didn't have a lot of words or a lot of conversation. But whenever you saw her, you felt like, yeah, I feel good. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> happy loved. that I'm seeing her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm important. Yeah. And um, we just thought that was a tremendous gift. And so we wanted to figure out a way that she could share that gift and the the place. And it took us nine or 10 places till we found the right place. We tried some places that actually turned out to be wrong places for her to share that gift. But she started volunteering at a soup kitchen in downtown Trenton, which is our state capital in a pretty urban area. And it was just a perfect fit for her. You know, she would dish up the food and she did that several times a week. And whenever people would walk through the door, she knew most of them and she'd run over and she'd give them a hug and she'd tell them she missed them and she'd ask how they were. And she knew if they had a a son or a daughter or someone they were waiting to hear from, she would ask about that. And people loved her. And she brought she brought real joy to people's lives. And in fact, a couple of years in. She won Volunteer of the Year Award um, at a big, there was a big banquet and she was honored at the the banquet. And, you know, she, she found her place in the community where she could show up, where she could share her gift and she could show up and make a valued contribution um, where she became a regular at that place and where she was seen as having a, and wasn't just seen, she had a very valued role. And it led to a whole bunch of other valued roles for her. But it's finding that, that gift, helping people find their gifts and then helping them figure out where they're going to share them. That That's mm. the third piece of what we thought was important. And the fourth piece was that whole idea of the finding where you're going to share them, finding the places in the community where that person can show up and helping them develop a, a presence in their community so that they are known and valued and, um, you know, seen as someone that is a real asset to that particular community. So um, one of the things we did to support that process of helping people find their their own presence in community was we made a decision not to have offices. And for a long time, we had no office whatsoever. And then we got a place where we kept the files when they outgrew my, my garage. Um, but what that meant is that when people interview their staff, when people do meetings with their staff or anything at all that goes on, it's out in the communities in which they live. And it means that our advisors and and myself, that we do our work actually out in the communities where people live. And it helps us to, to get to know those communities. And it certainly helps people to be there in their communities and be seen as a, you know, a, a person in the community. So, and the fifth thing that we thought was just critically important, and I probably I think this is probably the most important of all is that we support people to have meaningful relationships in their life and to develop a network of people in their life. Um, I think good paid relationships are critical and um, people in their staff, we have some staff who've worked for people now for 20 years and they, they just, they develop these wonderful relationships. But beyond that, to have people who are not paid to be part of their life, to have, um, friends and loved ones and, you know, the, the people in our life that, that are important to us. I mean, at the, at the end of your life, when you look back on it and think about what's important, it's typically the people you loved and the people who love you. Um, and those times when you're able to make a, a difference in the world. And so many of the people that I've met um, who happen to have the label of a disability have a very very small number of people in their lives who they love and who love them. And quite often, those people tend to be just family. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with family. Family are the most important people in my life. But it's those other people, our very best friends, our closest friends, people are with us throughout a lifetime, our acquaintances, the people we see uh, when we volunteer at the soup kitchen or when we walk around our neighborhood or um, when we go to the local gym and that we chat with, it's all of those people that give our life meaning. And, you know, I'm, I'm sad to say that many of the people that I've known over the past 35 years of doing this work, there hasn't been anybody. And many of the people I've known even didn't have family. You know, they've been separated from their family at a very young age or the person themselves was older and their family was gone. Um, so we thought that that was critically important for quality of life and, you know, also, and this is all 
data now. You know, there's been studies on this, but loneliness kills more people than smoking. So if you want people to be healthy and if you want them to be safe, they need to have people who love them, keeping an eye on them. Mm-hmm. So those five things, we thought if our job was to support people and to build assets in those five areas of life, to develop their their capacity and their ability to dream, um, to know what they want out of life, to keep dreaming bigger, to you know, have control of their life and understand what that meant and make their own choices and kind of grow in their ability to do that, to figure out what their gifts were um, and to share those gifts in community and to find places in community and become connected and be someone that's valued in their community and to support people to, you know, have relationships that are that are meaningful to them. And I'm not saying people have to know hundreds of people, but if we support people to have two, three, four, five, close friends. I, you know, I I feel good about that. And we think that that's where our work needs to focus on. So there's stuff we have to do to keep, so people keep getting their funding and there's stuff we have to do so we can continue to be an organization. And there's a paperwork we have to complete and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, we do that, but that's not the focus of our work. That's the stuff we do so that we can be available to support people to have a the kind of life they want to have. Yeah, I love those values. And I think they're all so important. And they're all interconnected mm-hmm. as well. Would you be able to share maybe a story of, of, of an individual that that you support that reflects and shows those values in action? Sure, sure. I'll share one of my favorite stories of a uh, a woman who was really quite older when um, when I met her. She was moving out of an institution when it was closing. She was 79 years old, and she had lived there for 50 years. And the institution, I'm really pleased that it did close. But she wasn't happy at the time that it was closing because I guess she had not known anything else. And I went, I went to meet her. This is the beginning of when our organization was starting, and I would go down there and try and meet anybody that I thought might be interested in what we were going to do. And I didn't necessarily think she'd be interested in what we were going to do, but I knew from the information I had that she wasn't interested in anything else. So I thought I could offer her some options. And I went and talked to her, and she was uh, just a, a beautiful woman. She had this long silver hair, and she was in her wheelchair, and she was hunched over, and um, she was in the hospital unit because she she wasn't eating at the time. And um, I talked to her about the fact that she was moving and I knew she wasn't happy. But if she would share her dreams with me, we could help her figure out, you know, how she wanted to live and she could live the life she wanted to live. And um, it could be wonderful. And even though she wasn't happy now when she actually moved, it could be a great experience. And, you know, I went on and on for quite a while. and. I couldn't tell if she was listening or not because her head was all hunched over. Um, and finally, she lifted her head up and she looked me in the eye and she told me to fuck off. And I thought, well, you know, that's not exactly the reaction I was expecting. I thought she was thrilled <laughs> to have somebody say this stuff to her. And I also thought, you know, so if she's really going to be in control, she's made her point very clearly. And I should do what she says. So I left. But I couldn't leave it at that because I just I had these visions of her being forced to move and not wanting to go. And actually had a dream one night where they were pulling her through the gates of the institution and she was kind of clinging on to the the pillar and refusing to go. And so I went back to see her again. And we had pretty much the same conversation. I said the same stuff and she said the same stuff. And, you know, I, I became to de- determined to try and get to know her better. Even if she didn't want to move, I figured I could see if I could get to know her better. Um, or she didn't want to move with us because she was going to have to move one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to see her over time and I brought her stuff. I brought her ice cream and I brought her magazines and I brought her videos and I hoped we'd be able to make a connection in some way or another. But she, her response to me was, the exact same words each time I went. And finally, one of the staff of the institution told me she liked some of the feral cats that were out back behind the the unit she was staying in. And so I brought her a cat when I went to visit her. And she loved the cat. She named the cat Tommy. And once she loved the cat, she started to 
I wouldn't say love me, but she started to like me a little bit. And within a week or so, she came out with me for coffee. And we drove through the grounds of the institution, and she was in the car with me, and we had her wheelchair folded up in the the trunk. Um, And I remember thinking as we drove through the gates, you know, and I knew this because in all the paperwork, she hadn't been off the grounds in 50 years, right? So this was 1996. Last time was 1946. Um, So she hadn't seen you know, tons and tons of stuff. She hadn't seen streetlights and Starbucks and movie cinemas and strip malls and all the different things that are out there. The Um, world changes a lot in 50 years. It does. So like, how could she know what her dreams are for what life is going to be outside of the institution? So as we drove around and she started to see things, I like to think it gave her some of a better idea of what could be. And we went out a number of times and, and I think you know, she started to get, I wouldn't say fond of me, but she started to feel a little more comfortable with me. And on one of our trips out, she said to me that, you know, it wasn't a lot of words, but she said, I want to live near my brothers, my older brothers, which, and, and when you think about that, you know, she, from what I knew, she hadn't seen her family in years, 30, 40 years. She had lived with them till the time she moved into the institution. And when you think about, how you hold that in your heart for all that time that you want to be reunited with your older brothers. I mean, that that's not something you're going to share with a stranger. I think the only reason she was willing to share that was because of the time we spent together. Um, so we found her brothers. One, one had passed away um, just recently, and the other who was in his 80s was still around, and we helped her get a two-bedroom apartment near um, where her brother lived, about a five-minute drive away, which was about an hour and a half from the institution. She had one bedroom, and uh, the second bedroom was for someone who was going to be a housemate and who would live with her and provide her with some support. Because one of the deals we had made for people moving into their own home instead of living in a group residence was that it wouldn't cost any more money than what it would be if they lived in a, a group home. So we had to figure out some more creative ways of supporting people to make the finances work. So she had a live-in housemate who didn't pay rent, but was available overnight and in the morning when she first woke up. And it was great for the housemate who was a nursing student and going to school and didn't have a lot of money. And the, the person we were working for was 80 by the time she moved. She went to sleep early at night and it allowed the housemate Trudy time to to study and do her thing. So it all, it worked out really well. And her cat, Tommy moved in with her and it, you know, the whole situation was a good situation for her. And she had originally thought she'd like to go to a senior citizen day program, but after being in her own home for a day, she had a big housewarming party. Uh, she decided she didn't want to, she wanted to retire. And at the age of 80, that was pretty reasonable. So we tried to find the things, um, the gifts that she had and the ways that she could become connected to the world. And it turned out she loved children. And she started doing babysitting for some of the young families on the the street and children loved her. And they would come over and with the support of her staff, because she had staff with her all the time, um, with the support of her staff, she would do some babysitting for the families on the street. And she got to know her neighbors and Um, The young moms would invite her over, and um, she got to expand her network through doing that. Uh, She loved animals. She wound up getting a dog, and um, she she also got a bird and fish and a rabbit, and she wasn't even supposed to have pets in her apartment. (laughs) But when you're in your 80s, I guess your landlord looks the other way. Reminds Um, me of like Ace Ventura when his landlord comes, all the pets hide, and then... (laughs) And they, they go, all come out. Well, they didn't even hide. They would climb on him. He, he, like, <laughs> like he didn't even see them. He would look the other way. Um, and she started, um, she got involved with the dog show circuit, where she would go to dog shows two or three times a week. And she got to know the people who brought their dogs to the dog shows. Her dog was not a show dog. And she hung out with the dogs, and that brought her a lot of joy. But she also hung out with the people, and she developed a whole network of people through the the dog shows. Um, And she made some other connections. A mother-in-law of one of the moms she hung out with would come over every Wednesday and they do baking because she liked uh, baked goods. And and so the last five years of her life were lived um, 
with her sharing her gifts, her love for children and her love of dogs, her being engaged in her community, both in her neighborhood and holding this valued role as a, you know, pretty much a grandmother in the neighborhood and her having this uh, wide network of people that she spent her time with. And when she passed away, you know, the, the people that showed up was just amazing to me. All the neighbors and their families and some of their friends she got to know, her brother and his kids and cousins and nieces and nephews and all these family people who were family who she'd been spending time with for the past few years and her friends from the dog show circuit. And so she went from, you know, this life that was in the institution for a very long period of time to a life in a place that was hers with her name on the lease and staff that she chose and uh, a life in a neighborhood and a community that was actually meaningful to her. Yeah, I love that story. And I love that she was 80 when, <laughs> when she started doing this work. And it's, I think that carries an important message that it's never really too late. Like, you know, if somebody that's 80 can, if, if you're able to support someone who's 80 to create a life of their own, you can do it at 60, you can do it at 50, 40, 30, you know, 15, right. To start to think about that. So yeah. And I love how really those values that, that you carry within your organization come through. Um, so Patty, I mean, such important information that you've shared today for all of our listeners, whether it be family, um, supporters or, or leaders in the disability sector, uh, where can people go to learn more about the work that neighbors do and maybe how could they get in touch with you if they wanted to learn more and continue a conversation? Okay. Well, we have two websites, one for the service part of the organization where we work for people, and that's um, neighbors-inc.com. And we, spend na- we spell neighbors the British way with a U in it, N-E-I-G-H-B-O-U-R-S. Um, and then we have a second website for a second company that we have, which is Neighbors International, and that's neighbors-international.com. And that's an organization where we do more of um, education in other countries, other states, and, um, you know, in other places around the world. So that's the second piece of of what we do. And on that website, you'll find some stories um, in video and some writings that might be useful. And some of the videos in particular, most of them are 10, 12 minutes at the most. And there's some various stories of people. There's some leading thinkers, um, things like that 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 people might find interesting and people are more than welcome to email me directly uh patty scott at neighbors-inc.com and i spell my name with an i perfect i'll include all that information in the show notes as well as the blog that goes along with the podcast and patty it uh it's a pleasure you have having you on the podcast today so thanks so much for joining me thank you for having me A big, big thank you goes out to Patty Scott for joining me on the podcast today. And I hope this podcast helped to give you a few different perspectives or look at things maybe a little bit differently or start to reframe things. And I hope it gave you an opportunity to think about the five values that Patty shares on the podcast. So really, you know, her values, neighbor's values of helping a person think about their dreams and and find their vision, uh, really having choice and control, helping people to figure out who they truly are and what they have to offer to the world. And then, you know, finding their gifts and finding a place, then finding a place to share their gift. And then kind of the, the fifth and what Patty feels is the most important value is to help people to build meaningful relationships in their lives. So I hope that that was really valuable for you to to hear Patty speak about those things and, and tell some stories that really encompass those values. And I'd love for you just to think about maybe one of those values that would be most impactful in the life of someone that you love. And think about how can you support that person to move the yardsticks forward for that one specific value? And what are some things that you can do to help them build that asset uh, for that one specific thing, whether that's relationships or whether that's helping them to create their dream and vision for their life or helping them to get more choice and control over their support. 
And uh, I look forward to sharing some more stories around helping uh, stories around people that have really started to build assets and these elements to their lives. And I hope to share a story upcoming on uh, an upcoming podcast about my sister and, and how she's building assets uh, in these areas of her life. Uh, I first have to ask her if she's interested in sharing those, but I think there's some really cool stories that she can share. Um, so, so think about that. And then if you're uh, in an organization or you lead an organization, uh, you have a voice in an organization thinking about um, if you had that blank piece of paper, or that blank slate, blank canvas, how would you really want to deliver services to the people that you support? And, and what would that look like? And, and taking an approach that Patty took of thinking about what are those values that, that you would like to have uh, for your organization? And, and how would that be different from how you currently support organizations? And Patty and, and Dave would be happy to help you think through this type of thinking. And I'd be more than happy to help you think through it uh, from a coach perspective and a business model perspective as well. So feel free to reach out to, to any of us to, to start to walk through that type of thinking. Now, next week, uh, excited about the guest that uh, that we have coming on. It's uh, her name is Dr. Anik Jansen, and she resides in New Zealand. And uh, we've in a previous episode we had um, Melissa Jansen, her daughter, come on, and we talked about siblings. And uh, Dr. Anik Jansen has really taken that blank canvas thinking and applied it to the experience of families where there's a son or a daughter with a disability and thinking about what would be the best experience for uh, for families as they start to go through um, interacting with service providers and finding the vision or the dream for their families. And uh, Dr. Anik Jansen really uh, has some great um, experience with this, and she's done a lot of thinking around it and excited to bring that to you. Uh, she's going to share uh, a course that she's put together and, and built and piloted across uh, Australia and I believe New Zealand as well, and also a game. So we're going to uh, have a fun conversation and share some fun insights with you with Dr. Anik Jansen next week. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.